This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome back to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, bringing you news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who have had no influence on the content or the choice of faculty. I'm Emma, and today we're building on last episode's discussion of the importance of awareness of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLD. This week we'll discuss how we can help people with type 2 diabetes and NAFLD to reduce their risk of progressing to NASH, or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. First, we'll briefly review the currently available literature on this topic, and then we'll be joined by Dr. Stephen Harrison, who's an internationally recognised researcher in NAFLD, and he'll give his advice on practical steps to implement in the clinic. So in the previous episode, we discussed how among people who develop NAFLD, around 20% will progress to NASH, which causes progressive damage, resulting in fibrosis, cirrhosis, and increasing the risk of liver cancer. And though it's possible to assess the risk of NASH, diagnosis requires biopsy. While there are currently no approved treatments, even where NASH is confirmed, we do have some clinical data to suggest how to improve outcomes. Currently, the best way to do this is understood to be through significant weight loss, around 5-10% to of body weight. One systematic review published by Susan Keneally and colleagues in 2017 reviewed 24 randomised controlled trials of diet, exercise or combination interventions that aim to reduce steatosis or markers of NAFLD activity. The review concluded that between 5-10% to weight loss should be recommended for a reduction in steatosis through a combination approach of a 500 calorie deficit for energy intake plus 30-60 to 60 minutes of exercise 3-5 to five days per week. However, the researchers did note that this amount of weight loss through lifestyle intervention alone might be challenging in a real-world situation outside the controlled trial environment, and so interventions in specialist clinics would likely be needed to achieve this level of weight loss. A 2019 meta-analysis by Kutakudis and colleagues similarly looked at the effects of weight loss programmes on liver disease biomarkers in people with NAFLD, and they found that while weight loss was associated with clinically meaningful improvements in biomarkers of liver disease, no evidence of changes in fibrosis was found. Beyond lifestyle interventions, research around pharmacotherapy has included trials of treatments currently used in type 2 diabetes. In particular, pioglitazone in NASH has been shown to improve liver function, liver fat and also resolution of NASH, but can also cause weight gain according to a 2019 systematic review by Blazina and Self of trials in this area. So what do guidelines say about reducing the risk of NASH? The EASL, EASD, EASO guidelines published in 2016 say that a weight loss of between 7 and 10% body mass should be the target of most lifestyle interventions. And while they do say that pharmacotherapy should be reserved for patients with confirmed NASH and that pioglitazone and or vitamin E can be used, they do not make any firm recommendations around pharmacotherapy. Looking at diabetes guidelines, the 2018 ADA-EASD consensus statement on reduction of hyperglycemia in type 2 diabetes recommends GLP-1 receptor agonists or SGLT2 inhibitors where there is a compelling need to reduce weight. So based on this, combined with the evidence around weight loss goals in NAFLD, does this amount to a need to consider using GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors in people with diabetes and NAFLD? Joining us to answer that and other questions is Dr. Stephen Harrison. 
He's currently medical director of clinical research organization Pinnacle Research based in Texas, and he's a visiting professor of hepatology at Radcliffe Department of Medicine, University of Oxford, and his disclosures are available in the episode notes. So firstly, given the lack of approved pharmacotherapies to treat NASH, what management approaches can we recommend to people with NAFLD and factors of high risk? Yeah, I, I think this, this is a, a very good question to lead off with. I think it's first we need to recognize that NAFLD is very common and that it can progress even without obvious persistent elevations or even any elevations in liver chemistry tests. <clears throat> you know, the, we published a paper recently in the Journal of Hepatology, really trying to answer the question of how common this disease is. And we did it by enrolling patients prospectively who presented for routine colon cancer screening. Every one of those patients felt like they had a normal, healthy liver. And when they were in having their colonoscopy, we asked them if they would like to have their liver assessed non-invasively with liver chemistry tests, fiber scan, and MRI, MRI, I'm sorry, MRI, which included MRI proton density fat fraction and multi-parametric MRI, <clears throat> as well as uh, MRI elastography. And if any one of those tests were positive and they met certain key positivity criteria, they were offered a liver biopsy. So really it is a, it is a study that, that, that uses liver, that uses MRI as the gold standard to define fatty liver and then liver biopsy as the gold standard to define NASH. It's one of only two publications that have ever been published using liver biopsy prospectively to define the prevalence of NASH. And we ended up enrolling over 600 patients. It took us about five years to do it. And we found two very interesting things. Number one, the overall prevalence of fatty liver in a middle-aged cohort of patients presenting for routine colon cancer screening was 37% by MRI. When you look at the diabetic population, specifically, the prevalence of fatty liver was about 70%, 7 zero. And when we did liver biopsies on all of the patients that are in the cohort that agreed to a liver biopsy, which was over 250, the overall prevalence of NASH was defined at 14%. But when looking at the diabetic population, it was about 35%. So if you just focus on diabetics, 70% have fat, 35% of them have NASH. So it is a, it is a, a real problem. <clears throat> now, that's why it's important to first have an idea in the back of your mind that we need to recognize this disease. In fact, I came up with an acronym just for your podcast. And that acronym is RACE, R-A-C-E. We need to recognize the disease. That's the very first thing. If we don't recognize it, we're gonna, we can't do anything else. Number two, we need to assess the disease. Number three, we need to clinch 
the diagnosis. And number four, we need to educate the patients about their diagnosis and proper treatment and management of the disease. So that's race, recognize, assess, clinch, and educate. So we just talked really about the first one, and that is recognizing that NAFLD and NASH is a real problem. It is, a, it is its own pandemic, if you will, and that fatty liver can progress. It can progress to fatty hepatitis. We call that NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And that can progress to cirrhosis, liver cancer, need for liver transplantation, and even death. So, uh, you know, that, that first little bit about recognizing the disease is critically important. Uh, so I just wanted to start with that. And secondly, should pioglitazone be used to manage comorbid NASH and diabetes, given its effects on fibrosis? Yeah, so there, there are, maybe just start with a, a more of an overall picture of fatty liver and disease and diabetics. There is no FDA approved or EMA approved treatment for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is such a prevalent and uh, critical condition in diabetic patients. We do know, however, that pioglitazone and vitamin E, as studied in the PIVNS trial, uh, has shown efficacy in improving the histopathologic features of NASH and to some degree fibrosis as well, although it's not as well recognized that pioglitazone has positive impacts on fibrosis, what we understand is that if we can improve the fat in the liver, if we can reduce the fat in the liver, that we will have positive impacts on inflammatory pathways that lead to stellate cell activation, which are responsible for laying down the scar in the liver. Think of it this way. When you cut your skin, you get a scab. That scab allows skin cells to grow across the cut and heal. When the skin is healed, the scab falls off. However, if you cut the skin in the same spot every day for 20 years, the scab gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's exactly what happens with liver disease. It's not called a scab, but the liver regenerates just like the skin does. When it's injured, it lays down a framework of collagen, we call that fibrosis, that allows new hepatocytes to, to grow. And when the injury is taken away and the, the liver has regenerated, then that scar tissue gets reabsorbed over time by the liver and goes away. So the first thing we have to do is take away the insult. The insult in this case is fat, which causes lipotoxicity and drives all of the inflammation and subsequent activation of stellate cells and fibrosis. Pioglitazone does a very good job at improving adipocyte insulin resistance, which present, prevents free fatty acids from being sent to the liver where they begin that injurious process called lipotoxicity. So pioglitazone, we published first in 2006 in the New England Journal, studying just NASH alone uh, with Ken Cousy as my partner. And we showed very nicely that 
this drug could be effective in resolving the histopathologic fat that's in the liver, as well as its subsequent inflammatory components. Fibrosis is not, wasn't the biggest finding. In fact, it, it didn't move the needle a ton, but it was a short-term trial. Subsequent work by Ken Cousy using pioglitazone has shown that with appropriate treatment, longer treatment duration, that you can actually begin to get fibrosis benefit. So within our own guidance document for the management of fatty liver, we do recognize that pioglitazone is an alternative choice to be used in the management of diabetics with NASH. And we just recommend that you start with a low dose and titrate slowly so that you not hit with some of the, uh, the water weight gain that can accompany pioglitazone therapy and lead to unmasking of right-sided heart failure. So uh, it, is, it is in our management algorithm and in the right setting, I think pioglitazone would be a useful medication in the management of diabetics with NASH. Considering the weight loss effect of GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors that we see in diabetes, should we consider these agents in people with diabetes and NAFLD or indeed NASH? The short answer is yes. It's not a frontline agent. The frontline agent is still metformin. But rapidly, people are beginning to use the GLP-1 receptor agonist and the SGLT2 inhibitors more commonly as a second-line agent in diabetics <clears throat> because of two reasons. Number one, the, the added benefit of weight reduction. And number two, the data that is beginning to emerge on MACE events, which are cardiovascular endpoints. So both of these drugs now have very good data suggesting that they have positive impacts on cardiovascular disease in diabetic patients. So we know if we reflect back on NASH, that the number one killer of a NASH patient is cardiovascular disease. So it makes sense that if you have a diabetic and metformin is not managing the patient appropriately, and you need to go to a second line agent, that either the SGLT2s or the GLP-1 receptor agonist would make for a, a, you know, a, a therapy that, that would be additive in managing their diabetes, would be potentially helpful in mitigating weight gain and potentially accentuating weight loss. And then in the long term, there may be additional cardiovascular benefits in the utilization of one or both of those drugs. Do you have any final recommendations to our listeners on managing diabetes and NAFLD when they both present together? Well, I'm so glad you asked, and I absolutely do. So let me conclude by saying that, first of all, again, getting back to my acronym, RACE, recognize, assess, clinch, and educate. We need to recognize that this is a real disease. We need to recognize that it can be asymptomatic and often is. We need to recognize that you may or may not have elevated liver chemistry tests. So knowing that, how can we recognize and identify these patients? We've alluded to diabetes. Diabetes is singularly the most important risk factor for underlying non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and progression to NASH. That's followed by 
obesity, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and overall metabolic syndrome. In addition, if you're over the age of 50, if you're Hispanic ethnicity, if you have a family history of fatty liver disease or cirrhosis, you're also at increased risk for this disease. And I would recommend taking an extra look at those patients. In Texas, the most common situation for progressive fatty liver disease would be an overweight or obese, diabetic, Hispanic female over the age of 50. Uh, that, that is the highest risk category. And in our prevalence study that we did that I alluded to at the beginning, the prevalence of fatty liver in that population is 90%. The prevalence of NASH was almost 50%, five zero. So once you've identified your population that you think is at risk for NASH, then we apply some simple non-invasive tests that can help us exclude those that we don't need to worry about. And we can just counsel with lifestyle management guidelines versus those that we need to be more aggressive in our approach in assessing and clinching the diagnosis of NASH. That would be a simple test often used in the UK, for instance, called FIB4, FIB-4, which is just a simple combination of uh, uh, routinely obtained demographic data along with some simple blood tests looking specifically at ALT and AST. There's an online calculator that can, uh, when you impute the simple demographic and clinical data, it gives you a score. If that score is less than 1.3, you're completely fine. Your patient, we don't need to worry about today. If it's greater than 1.3, we recommend doing a second study, some sort of imaging study. It could be a fibro scan, which is a simple bedside procedure that could be done non-invasively and it takes about 10 minutes to do. It's very helpful. It gives me a score for, fibro for fibrosis called a kilopascal score, and it gives me a score for fat called the CAP score or controlled attenuation parameter. Anything over 300 for a CAP tells me with very good reliability that the patient has fatty liver. When the KPA value is greater than eight and a half, we begin to worry about a significant amount of fibrosis in the liver. So if your FIB4 is greater than 1.3 and your FibroScan KPA score is greater than eight and a half, those patients need to be referred for further evaluation by a specialist, which might include an MR, an MRI, or a liver biopsy, or further rec evaluation in the form of a clinical trial to manage those patients. Just a final thought on education. That's the E in race. We need to be really attentive in helping our patients combat and control non-alcoholic fatty liver because we just don't know who's likely to progress versus who's not. There are risk factors that make you increasingly likely to progress, but having said that, we're not really exactly sure which patients are deemed to progress over time and those that aren't. So we provide the same lifestyle modification recommendations to all of them. And those are very simple. 
In my practice, I tell patients to eat less, run more. Four words, eat less, run more. When you eat less, focus on not eating carbs. Bread, rice, pasta, pizza, potatoes, French fries are included in that. Sweet potatoes are included in that. Desserts or fructose containing beverages. And then we need you to exercise and we need you to both do aerobic and anaerobic exercise. So start by walking, start by lifting some simple weights. We wanna build lean muscle mass because we know that improves insulin resistance. And in so doing, will mitigate free fatty acids from coming out of adipocytes and into the liver and causing the whole problem that we just finished talking about. So with that, I will conclude and thank you for the opportunity to be on your podcast today. Thank you. I thought that was a great um, overview and really clear recommendation. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks for listening. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast and your favorite app or leave us a review or rating to help other people find us. Join us for the next episode with Professor Aaron Sanyal to discuss best practice approaches in identifying people at high risk of NASH.